Let's open up our Bibles now together, though, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We began our, great, uh, our study of this great letter last week. Just looking at one verse. We're going to cover way more ground this morning. Verses 2 through 4, which is exciting for all of us. As you are able, let's stand together one more time in honor of the word of the Lord. Again, this is not something we do out of empty ritual. This is, this is something we do to, to remind ourselves of where authority lies. That, that, that we are called to, to be a people of the word. That God has, has graciously given us his word. His living, supernatural, inerrant, fully inspired and authoritative word. And so we, we simply rise to remind ourselves um, that we, we honor the word of God. Let's hear now the word of the Lord from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, thank you for this good, pure, perfect gift that you have given to us, that by your spirit, through your word, we hear the very voice of our God. We come to know our God. We are transformed more and more into the likeness of our God, into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is this, this same spirit working through this same word that has brought us from the kingdom of darkness into light, from, from death into life. It's this same spirit working through this same word that gives sight to blind eyes and hearing to deaf ears. Lord, I pray that you'd accomplish all of your good purposes in and among us by your spirit, through your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. I remember when I was a kid, and this is, this is long before Al Gore invented the internet, my parents bought a book, a set of world book encyclopedias. Still remember what they looked like with the brown and black covers. You'd have thought these books were rare treasures, the way we approach it. We just thought this was a huge deal to own this. Children, these are encyclopedias. Treat them with great care and respect. I'm only adding the mockery because my parents are here this morning. <laughs> Oh, we, we did, though. These were prized possessions. This was a huge deal to us to own these books. And anything you wanted to know, anything at all, you could look it up in these books and the answer would be there for you. Well, not anything. And not even close, really. And, and today, it's laughable to think that, isn't it? To think you could have 20-some books and be like, and all the answers you need for everything... There they are. It seems funny to us. We all walk around with high-powered computers in our pockets all day long. We have access in an instant to an almost infinite amount of information. No one in history has had the access to information that we've got. Has had answers readily available to us wherever we're at, anytime we want. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It's incredible to think about it, and we're completely used to it. It would have blown our minds, wouldn't it, 30 years ago? To, th to think that, that life would be like this? So much information is available to us, and a virtually unlimited number of questions can be answered. And yet some of the most important questions, some of the questions that really matter, some of the questions that really affect us in our lives, 
are the kind that can't be answered by an internet search or by a, a, an artificial intelligence assistant on our phone who we can just speak to and she'll deliver whatever we need. Of all the questions that are difficult to answer, some of the hardest are why. Why questions. We want to know why things happen. We want to know why things are the way they are. Why things have, have happened the way they did. And those answers aren't always easy to come by. And the, the times when we're most prone to answer those, ask those questions that are so hard to answer is when we are suffering trials. It's when the tests come back from the doctor. And it's that thing everybody feared but was afraid to speak it's when the layoffs come at work and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills and perhaps your, your hours have been cut so drastically and the holidays are upon us and you just feel the dread. It's when your phone rings in the middle of the night and you have to rush out to the emergency room. It's when a doctor or a police officer or a chaplain tells you, I'm sorry, they didn't make it. These are the times when, when we're haunted by this, this, this cry that sort of comes right out of our guts and says, why God? Why this? Why now? Why us? When trials and tribulations visit us, then questions of why, it's not just a matter of curiosity. It's not just a matter of solving a puzzle. They are deeply personal. Why? Why my loved one? Why now? Why this way? And it's not wrong to ask those questions. It's quite natural to have those questions. If you have asked questions like that, or perhaps in this moment in your life are, are asking questions like that, you are not alone. God's people have always wrestled with questions of why God does what he does. In, in times of trouble, why is a question in desperate search for an answer? And it can be a question that leads to despair. So sometimes the reasons are hard to understand. Sometimes the reasons are tough to accept. Sometimes the reasons are difficult to find. In fact, sometimes we just never get the reason. We never see it. But what our brother James wants to do for us today is to show us that why can be a question that leads us to hope. Why do we experience trials and tribulations and suffering in this life? What's the purpose of our suffering? What's the significance of our pain? James answers these difficult questions in the opening verses of this letter. And he does it so simply. James is writing to believers who are well acquainted with trials. Well acquainted with suffering. Remember last week as we saw in verse 1. He addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And again, the dispersion is just this, this scattering of Jews throughout the Gentile world. James is writing to Christians, though. He's writing to, to Jews who have come to faith in Christ. They are living outside the land of Israel. They are strangers in a strange land. What we didn't talk about last week is why that is. Why these Christians had been scattered. That story is told to us in the book of Acts at the church's beginning. Early on, the church of Jesus Christ grew rapidly. Thousands came to saving faith. As we read in Acts, sometimes thousands in a single day coming to faith in Christ, being added to the church. And soon, persecution began to come against them from the Jewish leaders, particularly in Jerusalem. Just as they had persecuted Jesus, so now they persecuted 
his people. And then Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7, and that unleashes the greatest wave of persecution that had come yet. We read this in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Then there arose in that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Scattered here. That, that word in Acts 8.1. They were all scattered through the regions. It comes from the same root word as this word dispersion in James 1.1. 1, 1. These new Christians had to flee for their lives and they spread throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's the, the region surrounding Jerusalem. But in time, these Jewish Christians ended up scattering further than that. Scattering really outside the promised land entirely. We read in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, they spread throughout the whole Gentile world. It says, now, those who were scattered, again, it's the same root word, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. In other words, as persecution grew and worsened, they just spread further and further and further, far and wide throughout the land, outside, though, the land of Israel. And as these believers scattered, they carried the gospel with them. It turns out this was part of God's plan. This was part of God's plan for taking the gospel to the world was was the fiery ordeal and trial that they were facing Then as they'd settle in new lands, persecution would follow them there as they proclaimed the gospel throughout the the Roman world. Both Jews and now Gentiles persecuted them in various ways. We get a sense of that as we read James's letter in chapter 2, verse 6. He talks to them about about the rich people who are oppressing them and dragging them into court. In chapter 5, verse 10, he encourages the believers to endure suffering with patience like the prophet's who had come before them. So, so James is writing to believers who had experienced and would continue to experience great trials, many of whom are far from their homes as strangers in a strange land. And what is it that James has to say to these people? How does he explain their suffering? Well, what's the reason for their trials? That James is going to give us those answers here in these verses. Hear them again. Beginning in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As we said, James is an intensely practical book. James is, is, is deeply concerned that we live like Christians and that we think like Christians. What's the very first thing he says to us? He says how we ought to think about the trials that that come our way. We ought to think like Christians about them. Why why do trials come into the lives of God's people? In these verses, James gives to us the God-appointed reasons for why they come. There are are God-appointed reasons for why trials come into our lives. Now, there are those who believe that the course of our lives is random, There's no grand design to life. Things just happen to us. Scripture teaches us something very different from that. In fact, the polar opposite of that. We learn from God's word that God is always at work to accomplish his good purposes in everything. That includes our trials. Think about the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. 
What happens to Joseph? His brothers betray him. His brothers sell him as a slave. They fake his death so that their dad won't find out about it. Later, Joseph is falsely accused and imprisoned. He's exiled to Egypt, far away from his home. Yet God's at work in all of it. God causes Joseph to rise to power second in command in Egypt under Pharaoh. Eventually, the family is reunited. Joseph even forgives his brothers. And after all of that, Joseph says this to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The language there is very, very important. The text doesn't say, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. As if God made lemons out of lemonade. This was a bad situation. Or lemonade out of lemons, right? Yeah, we're going the wrong direction. We need that sugar. It's it's not the way. This isn't God making the best of a bad situation. You meant evil against me. God taking the cards he was dealt made something good out of it. No, that's not what he says. He says, God meant it for good. It's the exact same word. You meant it, and God meant it. God meant it. There was meaning in it. There was purpose in it. God had a plan. God had a beautiful and a good design that was underneath his brother's sinful and wicked design. They meant something. They were sinning. They were committing evil. And underneath that, God meant something too. God had a design. The brothers meant evil for Joseph. They purposed it. They designed it. They carried out evil against us, against him. But God had meaning and design for those exact same events. And God's meaning and God's design superseded the brothers. It was more powerful than theirs. They meant evil. God meant it for good. What's true, brothers and sisters, for Joseph is true for all of us. There's peace to be had if we will understand this. There is meaning. Whatever it is that you have been through or are going through or will go through, there is meaning behind your trial. Behind your trial, behind your suffering is a loving and merciful hand that is governing and guiding your life for the glory of God and for your eternal good, for your eternal joy. God's providences to us are always kind. Sometimes the taste is bitter. They are always his kindness. They are always his gifts. To his people, but not every gift that we receive from him is wrapped exactly the same way. Sometimes his gifts are wrapped in pleasure, sometimes the gift is wrapped in pain. But it is all the kindness of God to us. In either case, James chapter 1 and verse 17, James is going to tell us this every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But in order for us to see our trials this way, the way that James is telling us we need to see them, the way that we need to understand them, in order for us to do that, we need to learn God's purposes in the trials that he brings into our lives. Knowing these purposes will help us not just to to endure trials, but to thrive in them. 
Thriving in the midst of our trials is exactly what God wants from us. And that might sound incredibly unrealistic. Look at what James tells us in verse 2. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This word count, it means to to consider, to regard, to, to make a judgment about something. James is telling us you need to think about your trials in a certain way, to adopt a certain mindset, to, to cultivate in your mind a certain perspective about trials when they come into your life. What does James say that should be? He says when trials come into our lives, we're to count them as occasions for joy. Count them, he says, as joy and And not just a little joy. He says count it all joy. All there is an adjective that's actually modifying the word joy. It's emphatic in the Greek. In other words, it expresses an intensity of joy. It could be translated as great joy. Pure joy. Trials are an occasion for great joy. Now how opposite is that to the way we usually think about them? We need to be clear, that's not to minimize the pain we feel when suffering comes. That's not what James is trying to do. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is not that I refuse to make a negative confession and admit that I'm hurting. No, no, no. It's not meant to bring shame on us when we feel sorrow. It is not a sin to be sad. That's not what James is saying to us. After all, Jesus wept and was greatly Sorrowed, And he did not sin in doing that. Sorrows and tears come because the world we live in is broken. It's fallen. And so, yeah, we're going to feel sadness. We're going to feel discouragement. We're going to feel weakness. We're going to feel desperation. Perhaps for, for some of us, you're going to feel anxiety and depression. But... When trials come, we must also develop a mindset about our trials. A mindset that, that, that says that we should consider our trials as an occasion for joy. We, we need to speak the truth to what we feel. What we feel is what we feel. It's not sinful to be sad or discouraged. The issue is what are we going to do with it? We need to speak the truth to it. This world is full of trials, is it not? From the day we're born, we're destined for trouble. Job 5.7 says, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Trials are inevitable. Notice here in verse 2, James doesn't say, if you encounter trials. He says, when you meet trials, you will meet them. They will come upon you. That word meet means to fall into. It could be translated encounter, to come upon something suddenly. You know, picture yourself walking in the woods on a trail and you come around a corner and there's a grizzly bear right in front of you. A chance encounter that changes everything. That's the word here for meeting these trials. It's used for tragedies that just sort of suddenly come upon a person. It's the word Jesus used in the parable of the Good Samaritan about this man who fell among robbers. Jesus used this word to to describe this this sudden tragedy that overtook this man. All of a sudden, here these guys are, and they beat him up, and they rob him, and they leave him for dead. 
Luke uses the same word in Acts to describe Paul in a shipwreck. Paul striking a reef. It's the same word. It's this sudden, unforeseen crash that comes into Paul's life. And we hear that word. When you meet trials, and, and I think most of us just can resonate with that easily. Isn't that how it feels? Just something has suddenly set upon you. It's as if it was crouching and waiting for you to get there. And it just sprung at you in the most unexpected moment. These trials take many shapes. That's what James calls them trials of various kinds. We have big trials and small trials and trials of all shapes and sizes. And one of the things we love to do with each other is somebody shares with us. They have enough courage to share with us that they're struggling and hurting. And then we're tempted to be like... That's nothing. Let me tell you about. And we minimize and we go, oh, that our kids are hurting. And we go, you don't even know what the real world's like. No, trials of various kinds. And any occasion that tests our faith, James says, that's an occasion we should count as a great joy. How can that possibly be? Why should we count them as great joy? I like what Kent Hughes says in his commentary. He says, what does James' command really mean? In answer, we must first understand what it does not mean. James is not ordering all-encompassing joyful emotion during severe trials. Nor is he demanding that his readers must enjoy their trials or that the trials themselves are joy. Rather, James is commending the conscious embrace of a Christian understanding of life. James says, consider it pure joy, which means to make a deliberate and careful decision to experience joy even in the midst of of trouble. The rationale for such joy comes from knowing that the various trials we face have spiritual value. Trials are not fun. Trials are bad. They, They hurt. Suffering is not fun. It doesn't make any sense to pretend that it is. And we don't read that from our our heroes in the Bible. Paul says that we despaired even to death. Well, that sounds like depression to me. There's no sugarcoating any of this. So why should we count our trials as great joy? Because to use the language of Joseph from Genesis chapter 50, God means something by them. He means something in them. We should count our trials as as great joy because they're designed for us by God. They are designed by God. James tells us in this passage for two purposes. First, trials are designed by God to produce steadfastness. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is translated in other places in the New Testament as endurance, as perseverance. It literally means to remain under. Picture a person carrying a heavy, heavy load and bearing up under that load for an extended period of time. That's what steadfastness is. It's it's the capacity to hold up. It's the capacity to hold out, to to bear up under adversity. It's, It's fortitude of character that resists quitting, giving up. Giving in. And steadfastness is essential in the Christian life because Jesus promised us what? In the world you will have tribulation. Paul taught his disciples that they would experience trials. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, he taught the churches that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So since trials are are guaranteed for us, even as God's people... 
Steadfastness is essential for the Christian life. To to be able to bear up under the weight of the heavy burdens that we carry. That there are many kinds of trials, again, that come upon us, but James speaks to all of them with this word. This isn't just for a certain category. In fact, the truth is of believers, despite some teaching that says if you're a Christian, then you're just going to be healthy and wealthy and all's going to go well with you. And anytime it's not, it's a lack of faith. No, that's not true at all. We'll face everything that the world faces and we'll carry more trials than someone who doesn't know Christ because we will receive ridicule and slander and loss of relationships and persecution for the cause of Christ. It's a whole category of suffering the world doesn't even know anything about or experience. So steadfastness is is essential for the Christian life and you can grow in it. You can grow in steadfastness. It's like a muscle that grows and strengthens the more that it is tested. In fact, it only grows and is strengthened the more that it is tested. Without having to endure trials, you will not grow in endurance. It's impossible. James says here in verse 3, it's the testing of your faith that produces steadfastness. This, this testing that he speaks of, it's, it's, it's not the kind of test to determine whether your faith is real or not. Sometimes people talk like that. It doesn't make any sense with what the Bible teaches that God's testing you. He just wants to see if you're with him or not with him. He wants to know if your faith is real. That's heresy. God knows if your faith is real or not. God knows who are his. He's not testing you so he can learn something. Rather... God designs trials to test your faith so that as you trust him in the trial, you will grow. You will be strengthened. You will grow in endurance. You will grow in your capacity for endurance by trusting in him. The testing, James says, produces something. It produces perseverance. That word produces is a word used in farming. It's it's the cultivation, the working of a land by a farmer. And they do that for a purpose. In Joseph's language, the farmer means something by the work that they're doing. What's the purpose of cultivating the land? It's to produce a crop. In a similar way, faith-testing trials produce the fruit of steadfastness in God's people. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says exactly the same thing. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. To to remain steadfast in trials, to, to grow in our capacity for spiritual endurance, this is a gift. It is a blessing. It is a kindness of God to us. As your faith is tested and you grow in your capacity for endurance, the trials that perhaps at one moment in your life would have shaken your faith no longer shake your faith. You have a new ability to stand up under more difficult trials without losing hope and joy. And then God will use you for greater and greater and greater works. As you grow in your capacity for steadfastness. James chapter 5 verse 11. James says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's the story of Job. James is, is, is using Job. He's, he's framing all of this with, with Job. This Christian way of thinking, this Christian understanding of the world and all that come into our lives. Job who lost everything. Job who, who suffered far more greatly than any of us could even understand. The story of Job is this. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's what James says. So believer, don't despise your suffering. Again, it doesn't mean we enjoy it. It doesn't mean we love it. But we need to think about it like Christians. We need to think about it in light of what God has revealed to us in his word for our joy, for our good. The light and momentary afflictions you are experiencing now are preparing you for a weight of glory beyond all comparison, both now and in eternity. So trials are designed for us by God. To produce steadfastness. That's the first thing James shows us. The second thing is this. Trials are designed by God to produce maturity. He says in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking nothing. It turns out. Steadfastness is not the end goal. It's not just that way. When I was a college tennis coach. We did a lot to build Endurance into our players. Some of it in the early two-a-days in the summer heat involved them throwing up. Uh, it, it was work. It was to produce endurance. But the goal was not just to have a bunch of really fit college kids. The, the goal was for the, the living out of what it means to compete and what it means to, to play. So it is that God is not just training us to make us really endure, to make us really strong and fit. There's an even greater purpose in our trials than learning endurance. We are called to be steadfast so that steadfastness, James says, will have its full effects. Uh, Those words, the full effect, could be translated in a a variety of ways. Perfect work is another good translation of that expression. It's the idea that when steadfastness runs its course, it produces a perfect product. It it produces a perfect work. The, The full effect for what it was designed, it produces. What's the end goal of lasting, enduring, persevering faith? James says... It's so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James uses three phrases here to to describe the ultimate purpose of our trials. Number one, perfect. Perfect is a degree of fullness beyond which there's no other degree. What happens if you add anything to or take anything away from perfection? It's not perfect anymore. It it is the, the pinnacle Second word is complete. It's a synonym of perfect. It refers to, to being whole. Not fragmented, but whole in every aspect of our character. Third, lacking in nothing. There's no deficiency. 
Nothing is missing. Nothing could be added to this. To add something to this would only be to diminish it. What James is describing is perfect spiritual maturity in our lives. God aims that we would become fully mature in Christ through trials. That we would be whole in every aspect of our character. That we'd be perfect without any deficiencies or fault. That's also what the Apostle Paul said the aim of sanctification is. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13, he says that our aim would be to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. The word mature there, it's that word perfect. To perfect manhood. To the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children. Maturity, perfection, fullness. Now, of course, in this life, we do not achieve sinless perfection. We will not achieve sinless perfection until we are glorified, until we either die or until the Lord Jesus returns in glory. But whatever it is, it's until we see him face to face, we're never going to hit the mark of perfection. But if we're going to take God's word seriously, ultimately, or we're, not, we're not just called to Maturity. We are called to, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the path to maturity in this life is the path of trials. How do we get there? How does God mature us? How does God sanctify us? Oh, in all kinds of ways. Certainly just the ordinary means of grace. We, what we're doing this morning, we gather together and we pray and we sing and we read scripture. The, the word is preached. There are all kinds of ways that God is sanctifying us. But, but one of the primary ways that those things get worked out in us is in trials. That's where real growth comes. Maturity comes. Those who grow are those who suffer. The path to maturity is watered with tears. But, friends, our trials are worth drawing closer to God. If they bring us closer to God, is it not worth it? If it makes us more Christ-like, as God intends for us, is it not worth it? In eternity, will we not look back and say, of course it was worth it? What's the reason for trials in our lives? God brings trials into our lives in order to produce steadfastness and maturity. And, and, and friends, if we know this, it will help us to count our trials as joy. Not the trial itself, not the suffering itself, but to say God's at work in this. Knowing that God has purpose in it helps us to bear up under the weight of affliction with joy, with faith, with trust, with hope, with peace. Charles Spurgeon, who suffered greatly, reflected on all the suffering that he experienced in his life, and his suffering was great. He said this, I'm afraid that all the grace I have gotten my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. In other words, all the grace I've received in all those wonderful times in my life, it just would all fit on a penny. That's how big it is. He says this, 
But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and grief is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of the furniture in my house. It's the best book in a minister's library. Spurgeon suffered greatly in his life. He, he was, I, I think, were he alive today, he would be diagnosed as clinically depressed. But he understood something of God. That, 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 that those who grow suffer. That the path to maturity is through trials. He had learned that it is through our trials that God grants his best gifts. So brother and sister, are you, are you suffering? Are you presently afflicted? Are you going through a trial? Our dear brother James would say to us, count it all joy. Count it all joy because God has designed this present difficulty to, to build perseverance into you. To bring you to maturity. To bring you into to blessing. And, and, and this isn't just a trite statement that we throw out. You wouldn't want to, 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 to in the midst of, in that hour of someone's deepest suffering... In that moment of devastation, you wouldn't want to walk into that, that ICU room. You wouldn't want to walk into that living room as the, the police are carrying the body out of the house and say to them, let me just read to you from James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy. Now, just because something's true doesn't mean that's the moment to say it. It's not something we just throw out there. But brothers and sisters, it is the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth we're meant to live in. It's the truth we're meant to live from. If you have, have lived your whole life just, just treating life like it is, it is random. God's not sovereign. It's just all about whatever we do. And someone comes to you in a moment and says, count it all joy. You, you, your, your laughter will be a bitter laughter. At those words. Your resentment will be great. But if it is settled in your heart that this is true. That God is sovereignly at work in all things for the good of his people. And for the glory of his great name. That, that even in our fiery trials he has designed for us something that is kind. That all of his providences though bitter to the taste. His kindness to us. If that is the settled conviction of your heart, it will change everything in those moments. And I will tell you, I have sat with both kinds of Christian. The ones who know that deep in their soul and are hanging on tight with both hands to that truth that they know. And the ones who don't know it. And there is a marked difference in those moments of suffering. This is truth. That we are to live in. That we are to live from. If we are convinced. Truly convinced. If we are convicted. Of the unshakable kindness of God to us. In every moment. In every circumstance. In every providence. Then these words right here will not be trite to us. They will be life. And hope. And peace. They, they will strengthen us. They will cause us to endure trials and hardships. And sufferings with faith. 
Let me just close with the story of William Cooper. William Cooper, the great 18th century hymn writer. We, we often sing one of his most beloved hymns, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. William Cooper suffered from severe depression, a mental illness his entire adult life. He wrote one of his best-loved poems during a particular season of struggle in 1773. He had just attempted suicide. One of numerous attempts at suicide that Cooper had made. He survived his attempt and then he wrote these words. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footstep on the sea and he rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. This is, is our brother who was suffering deeply and holding on tight with both hands to what he knew to be true about God. He persevered. He persevered in faith because he knew God was at work. And brother and sister, God, God is at work for your good. He is at work for his glory in every single circumstance, in every single moment of your life, even in the midst of your trials, even in the midst of your suffering. So, our brother James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these words of truth to you. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, the encouragement of your word, your word that even confounds our understanding. We, we think of the trials we have faced and are facing, and we think, how could there be joy in that? Lord, help us by your spirit to take you at your word, to trust you, to believe in you, to rest in you when our minds don't understand. Lord, we might not see the good. We might not see it. We most likely will not feel it. But would you cause us, Lord, to hold on tightly to what you have revealed as truth in your word and to trust you beyond sight, to trust you beyond feeling, to trust you beyond our understanding, to just take you at your word and to know, Lord, that you are at work for our good and that one day, Lord, we will see you face to face. We will know you fully, even as we are fully known by you, and we will, we will understand. We'll see your kindness. We will praise you for your marvelous grace. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that it brings. I do pray for my dear brothers and sisters who, who are suffering. Lord, for those who are depressed and for those that are hurting and for those that are hopeless, I pray by your spirit now you would minister life to them. Lord, give to them life and give to them hope. Lift their eyes by your spirit to behold Christ.
The one who came for them, who lived for them, who died for them, who has risen again. The one who holds them in his hand and is even now interceding on their behalf at the right hand of power. Cause them to trust in his promise that he will surely return. That all will be made right. That every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And in the meantime, Lord, we, we take great comfort in knowing that you are at work for our good. And even in that, our feelings mean so much to you. As the psalmist says, that you've keep, you keep track of our tossing and turning in the night. You store our tears in your bottle. Lord, how could it be? How could it be that the almighty God takes note of us? Thank you for this, Lord. We pray that, that we would be a people who walk in the knowledge of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.